Welcome to the Intelligent Investing Podcast, where modern portfolio theory can suck it. A student of the school of Graham and Doddsville and a clergy member of the Church of Warren Buffett, here's your host, Eric Schlein. Hi, this is Eric Schlein. You're listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast. And today we have a special guest, uh, Don Chambers. And Don, uh, Don, welcome to the show. Ah, thank you for inviting me, Eric. Yeah, now you have quite an interesting background. So you were a professor for you know quite a number of years, and now you do investment management at a firm, and you've written a bunch of books. So just tell us a little bit about who you are and what your background is. Well, I taught for 36 years, but while I was teaching, I was also doing a lot of investment management consulting and uh, consulting for banks and even involved a lot as an expert witness in litigation. And I retired about four years ago. And since then, I've become even more active in terms of writing, uh, writing investment books primarily and uh, doing investment management with a RIA out of Boca Raton, Florida. All right, interesting. And you're currently involved, you know, what I wanted to bring you on the show today is, you know, we've had some conversations. You're you're involved in a pretty interesting activist campaign with with a with a company. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh yes, it's a um activist uh action to mm-hmm. try to change the direction of a closed-end mutual fund called First Hand Value Technology Fund. And I'm doing it as an individual. I'm not doing it in combination with uh any uh, cons- uh, with my investment management firm, mm-hmm. and it's been quite an adventure to do it as a as an individual. And how does that work logistically? Being a manager of an investment firm, that you're doing it just as your own. What is there certain forms you have to file that are a little bit different, or you know, how does that work on the back end? Well, um, I own stock. You have to own stock in the firm and have owned it for, uh, I think it's a year or something. It's, it's, the instructions can be found on the web. There's step-by-step of how you write a shareholder proposal and has to be 500 words or less. And uh, it has to have a few elements to it. I found a great website. I, I don't know the exact name of it, but it was out of Cornell University that, that tells you how to step-by-step write a proposal and submit it to the uh, company. And you have to submit it like uh, a certain number of days before their announcement of the next annual meeting. And if you and apparently I followed all the rules correctly because I wrote it on my own, no help from an attorney or anything. I submitted it to the company, and sure enough, it it made it on the on the uh, ballot. And the proposal was what? Uh, my proposal is for them to, uh, in a word, liquidate uh, in an orderly fashion the fund uh, so and distribute that money to the shareholders. Uh, it, it went into detail about the different ways it could be done and then it would be need to be done in an orderly fashion. And it's a non-binding proposal. Uh, to have a proposal that literally binds the board of directors to uh, a specific action is a lot more difficult, uh, it might be impossible, I don't know, to do than what I did. It's a non-binding proposal. Gotcha. Now, are you also looking to like replace the management, or are you just wanting them to liquidate themselves? Well, if they liquidated it themselves, I'd, I'd be happy. But um, I'm also uh, urging people to withhold their votes for the board of directors and to withhold their vote for uh, to vote against the ratification of an auditor. And th- their reasons for that are 
twofold. One is to get better people in there. And second of all, to uh, the the stop blocking the, the uh, um, selection of an auditor uh, can be an effective way of putting pressure on the firm because the firm is fighting you. And as a shareholder, the firm is fighting me, will be fighting me with with my own money. They're spending money that that is is part of the, the the fund's money and it's pretty bad when you're paying both sides of a legal battle yeah it's, it's a little interesting that that's even legal if you think about it well where else are they going to get the I, money? I, I i hear you it's just it's always a little bit odd right when you know shareholders well, are, it's, are it's you... horribly skewed against the shareholders right, it really yeah. is and that's why uh, it isn't done much and frankly i think that if you look back into the you know 1960s and 70s when this country was doing so dismally economically, I think a lot of it was because there wasn't shareholder pressure on our corporations. And let's face it, corporations are the engine of our economy. Yeah. Uh, although actions stem from the individual, but uh, when when shareholders aren't pushing corporations to be efficient, they become extremely lazy and. Uh, I think that uh, the shareholder activity that started in the 80s through uh, uh, leveraged buyouts and uh, is, has been part of the uh, reason that since 1982, our economy has just been uh, the, you know, the best in the world. Incredible. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of people associate activists as kind of like a dirty word, like, you know, with a bad reputation, we'll come in, just fire everyone. You know that you know there's that that cultural uh, narrative about uh, about that archetype. Well, if activists come in and do stupid things like firing good workers, they won't be activists very long. Yeah. The wonderful thing about our economy is that people that are successful in identifying underpriced opportunities and and do, making a difference to make them valuable, they tend to gain wealth, which means they get more influence in a free market. People that make stupid decisions, like taking control of something and ruining it, uh, firing good people, uh, they tend to lose their wealth and have less influence in a free market. Now, I say in a free market because, of course, markets aren't the only thing that control behavior. Governments control them as well. And when people fight for political control, so, for instance, uh, uh, an organization might fight through uh, the federal government to get special protections, whether it's a union or an, uh, a corporation trying to protect itself from foreign competition, that's, that's again, going in the opposite direction. We're trying to use force to be unproductive rather than use voluntary cooperation to be more productive. Yeah, no, it makes sense. So, so tell us about how did you find this company? How did you get involved? What made you become a shareholder in the first place? Give us a little background on that story. Well, I learned about closed end funds a long time ago, uh, probably 30 or 40 years ago, and I didn't understand them. And I I could kick myself because I didn't, when I was 20 some years old, really start actively investing in closed end funds. And I urge your listeners to, to uh, take these closed end funds seriously. Uh, then I got involved with an investment management firm as a consultant, or a, actually more than a consultant, a, a quasi-employee for about 15 or 20 years, and it specialized in closed-end funds. So I learned uh, from a great a great uh, uh, 
investor how to invest in closed-end funds. And actually, that fund, that investor was a little bit of an activist himself, and he got me involved in activism. And I do not enjoy activism. I'm a non-confrontational person. Uh, but sometimes you got to do what you got to do. So I learned a lot about closed-end fund investing. And the key to closed-end fund investing is that in an exchange-traded fund or an open-end fund, the regular mutual funds that you trade through a, a Vanguard directly with a Vanguard or a Fidelity or mm-hmm. a Dreyfus or a T. Rowe Price, uh, a, a closed-end fund can trade at a market price that differs from the underlying value of the fund. In other words, if you were to calculate the value of the assets that the fund holds and divide by the number of shares, that's the net asset value. And the net asset value of the fund we're going to be talking about has ranged in the area of $17 to, I think, almost $30 per share. Yet its market price has ranged from maybe $3 to $15. So one would ask, well, why does the market price of a closed-end fund differ from the underlying value of its portfolio prorated across the number of shares? And the primary answer to that is expenses. The fund runs up expenses before they hand you the dividends and interest. So I like to think of the assets of a mutual fund as really belonging to two groups of people. And this is true for any mutual fund. It, it largely speaking, belongs to the shareholders, but part of it is, belongs to the managers because they're collecting a stream of expenses or uh, its revenues to them. They're collecting the, the fees, the advisory fees out of that. And for some of these closed-end funds, the advisory fees, the management fees, the total expenses are outrageous. They're so huge that the closed-end fund sells at a massive discount from its underlying net asset value. Other closed-end funds might have you know, really more reasonable, reasonable uh, expenses, or they might have provisions in them that automatically terminate the funds after a few years. So to me, If you can buy a closed-end fund at an inappropriately large discount and hold it, uh, uh, a good way of viewing this is that let's say a fund is selling at a 20% discount, and that's a large discount. The idea is you're paying $0.80 to get the claims to a dollar's worth of investment. And if the expenses on it are low enough, that can be a fabulous deal. Even if it always stays at a 20% discount, you're earning the, the dividends and interest minus some expenses on 80 cents on a dollar, but having only paid 80 cents. Uh, but the real goal is to buy something that's at, let's say, a 20% discount and hold it until its discount goes to 10%. And that can be done either through just the normal economic activity of supply and demand, or it can be done through activism. When you say ten percent, are you using that as an arbitrary number, or is that typically where a closed-end fund will will kind of park and stay? Like uh, a great question. Fund? I was using it arbitrarily, but it was okay. close to the ballpark, and it really depends on expenses. So there are some funds out there that I wouldn't buy at a sixty percent discount because mm. the the managers are just running it like their personal ATM. They're uh, they, they just are pulling the expenses out and the shareholders get almost nothing. And then there are a lot of great mutual, uh, closed-end funds out there that I would find attractive to buy at a 10% discount, especially some that have provisions where they terminate in a few years, which really cuts down on how much expenses are going to be taken out over just the next few years. Right. So I could throw out some ticker symbols if you wanted to hear them. Uh, but uh, FIV, if you like senior loans, uh, 
FIV is a term trust. Uh, BTT, uh, Baker Thomas Thomas, uh, is a great uh, municipal bond fund, closed-end fund. And those would be attractive at a discount of even less than 10%, in my opinion. Hmm. Now, how do, you, how do you go and find these? Well, you can do a lot of great research on, a, on the statistics of these firms on a website called CEF Closed End Fund, CEF Connect. Uh, it's a great, great source of the data. In terms of the theory of how you would invest in a closed end fund, uh, what I would suggest that you do is simply search for scholarly articles on this topic and get away from the ones that that you just get into all sorts of crazy uh, in my judgment, inconsequential issues, and look for something that really zeroes in on the uh, on the expenses. It's all about. It's almost always about the expenses of, uh, versus the discount. Uh, in in fact, I'm not trying to push the firm, but the firm that I do a lot of work with has a lot of videos that I've done, so I can tell you that they're reasonably good. Uh, on closed-end funds, and that's Biltmore Capital, B-I-L-T-M-O-R-E Capital, out of Boca Raton and Princeton. And if you go into that website, BiltmoreCap.com, uh, there's a lot of uh, videos and, and, and webinars uh, on this topic of how to pick a closed-end fund. Yeah. So let's go back to SVVC for a second. So, you know, in your um, proposal. So you're 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 looking to have shareholders withhold um, voting for uh, the director nominees, right? And you're you're also looking to have shareholders vote against uh, ratification of the company's uh, public accounting firm, and then you're also wanting shareholders to vote uh, for that non non binding stockholder proposal. So just just kind of walk with me through the logistics here. So let's say you get what you want, right? The the non-binding stockholder proposal passes. Um, they don't ratify the, the company's public accounting firm, and they withhold the votes for the nominees. Is the next step now that you put together a slate of people to replace those nominees? Like, what is the next step from there? That's a good question, and I'm uh, a little bit new to to this uh, going down this path. When I've done it before, it's been more that um, uh, you if you uh, start to wage a campaign. The firm wants to negotiate with you. Well, the firm, and I'm not interested in negotiating with the firm, so I really can't answer your questions fully, but here's okay, my best guess. Sure. I'm going to say that I think that if we turn down the board of director nominees, they will either simply present a new slate or wait till the ne- temporarily appoint some people and wait till the next year, uh, or they might try to compromise. Uh, in terms of rejecting the auditor, I'm not an expert in this, but I'll tell you my experience from 30 years ago is that if you can turn that down, it, it forces the company into a corner, and that's when they're willing to start to uh, bargain. I mean, look, it's, it's simply put, it's the managers trying to keep their job right. and me trying to help fire them. And, of course, if they press the non-binding proposal, and that's pr- the most likely one to pass, it will probably simply uh, the board of directors does not seem interested in doing this. It's a non-binding proposal, right. and I would guess that they're going to drag their feet. So, if the proposal passes but nothing else changes, does anything actually change at the company in that in that case? Um, if it's just my proposal that passes, I don't think a lot will change. But I think it would lay the foundation for next year. Mm. Uh, maybe some more serious proposals or maybe uh, changing the board of directors. 
Okay, so that could be that could be kind of the the groundwork for next year actually uh, replacing the board with it with a different slate. You're saying? Yes, I, I, this is this is probably not going to be a, a quick a quick uh, conversion uh, of the fund uh, or you know liquidation of the fund. This is this is maybe going to take some years. Yeah. Now, how is the does the management own a lot of stock? Is this going to be kind of an uphill battle for you, or do you think you have a pretty good chance of of, of making this happen? Well, the the last I looked, only one of the independent board members had shares, and it was seven hundred shares. Uh, when I when I say the last time I looked, the last published material that I've been able to find. Mm-hmm. But the the main guy that runs the fund owns something like eleven percent of the stock, so uh, that makes it an uphill battle. Right. And then the other thing that makes it an uphill battle, and this is a real problem in our country, is that a lot of shareholders hold their shares in in what's called the street name. So that means that uh, if you invest with, for instance, Merrill Lynch, then uh, they hold a block of, let's say, a million shares. And there may be 100 of their customers that that own those shares. And um, the, the, the proxy material is sent to the brokerage company and then the brokerage company distributes it. Uh, and uh, it's, it's not clear that the people really understand what's going on. Another problem can be that mutual funds can own it. Uh, and who are the mutual funds going to vote for? Well, there's a little bit of a good old boy network there that they certainly don't want to irritate uh, their uh, potential colleagues or competitors. So it's an uphill battle. And I think this has really been a problem in America that those votes might automatically, in some of the votes, get cast for the company's preferences. Right. And that's unfortunate. Now, do you have a way of reaching out to shareholders independently instead of waiting? You know, these are confidential lists. One thing that I could do is I could write a letter and then go to this fund uh, firsthand and say, I want you to distribute this to the shareholders. And they will explain that I'm an evil. I have not had any contact like them with this. But in the past, uh, the firm that I was working with decades ago the uh, the company would start to would start to argue in court that uh, we were an evil company and uh, we we they wanted to protect their shareholders that, that we were going to use the shareholder lists for nefarious purposes and there's a legal battle going on and remember you a shareholder you're paying both sides of this legal battle All right so so it's a it's a system skewed horribly against shareholder rights especially when the when the fund or firm is is incorporated in maryland and this fund is incorporated in maryland uh, maryland passes these incredibly management friendly uh rules and anti-shareholder rules in my opinion and so that a lot of companies uh, flock to there to get those uh, uh protections from shareholders which just is an absurd phrase that should never be uttered is protection from shareholders we're the owners right all right, that's a little wild. So you, you said the management uh, expenses are pretty high here. What what are we what are we talking about? Well, in a regular mutual fund, uh, like a good Vanguard mutual fund, you might find uh, expense ratios of 10, 20, 30, 40 basis points. That's uh, ten, that's like one tenth to four tenths of a one percent per year. And for a, a heavy load on a mutual fund. 
uh, or you, you might see a, uh, an expense ratio of 1% or even 2%. And for a lot of closed-end funds, it's, it's 1%. For this particular fund, it's 2%. Uh, it's, it's the classic private this, – this fund invests in pri- private equity venture capital. And the classic fees for a, a true private equity fund are two – it's called 2 and 20. They get 2% per year of the contributed capital and 20% of any profits. And that's the expense ratio. Now, we don't have to worry about the 20% share uh, incentive fees, the share of the profit, because this company isn't making profits. But the 2% annual management fees are tough. And here's the, here's the kicker. In the case of uh, this fund, the 2% is applied on the net asset value of the fund. So the net asset value of this fund is, let's say, $17 a share. Mm-hmm. They're collecting 2% of that, or $0.34 cents a share, in management fees, uh, roughly, and right now the the stock is only selling for four bucks, so or three bucks, so it, it comes out to be a double digit expense that's ratio cra- when insane. expressed as a percentage of stock price. That that's that's wild. Um, so it's, I mean, even if they're successful at this point, it would be pretty hard for shareholders to to make some good money just because of that well, those expenses. This uh, you know, if they were very successful as private equity can at times be, uh, it could overcome those fees. Uh, it, it would be possible. But now I think um, it, it would be very difficult to, to go, you know, to keep these fees being collected in perpetuity is what it boils down to, is is a huge uphill battle. And I, I really don't know how any shareholder who was rational and understood what was going on could want anything other than an orderly liquidation of this fund. Yeah. Interesting. Um, now, what if people have, you know, when, so when is this annual meeting going to occur? When is this vote actually going to occur? It, it's May 13th in San Jose, California. Okay. Now, for people ha- who have already voted, can they change their vote if they, you know, hear this podcast and they go, oh, God, I, I need to do something? Yes, you can. You could do it by uh, calling your broker and working with your broker. Uh, the votes are made on proxies, proxy cards, and you could write, it's kind of like a will. You can write 100 documents, sign them all, and the latest one that you've signed, the last one you sign is the one that matters. So you just have to get a new proxy card or work with your broker to get that or the company, get a new proxy card, sign it and date it, and they will use the proxy, in my understanding, that has the last date. Okay, got it. Now, I'm I'm just looking through... Um you know, your PowerPoint presentation that you made uh, for this. And, you know, one of the last slides, you say there's also a conflict of interest of the management. Can you can you go into a little bit more detail what you mean by that? Well, um, I want to be clear on that. And by the way, that presentation, which is updated now, is available on a website. And the website is simply savefirsthandtechnology.com. It's, it's one word without any, any uh, symbols or anything, save firsthandtechnology.com. You can find the proposal there. Okay, and also any resources that you want shareholders to be able to see, um, we can put all those links in the show notes as well. All right. Well, that's great. If you give a link to that, uh, save firsthandtechnology.com. So... um, uh, Yeah, conflict of interest. Conflicts of interest. To me, the biggest conflict of interest is inherent in this structure, and that is that they would like to keep the fund going and the fees being collected longer 
than the shareholder than is than is what is good for the shareholders in my opinion i mean that's the central conflict of interest so that begets a lot of other potential conflicts of interest and that is that they might communicate or structure things in a way that are going to keep their expenses going yeah. rather their which are revenues to them rather than uh, giving the money back to the shareholders or terminating the fund. That's really the central conflict of interest. Got it. Now, you also say that there's numerous first-hand funds that are no longer existing after poor performance. So are you saying that, was it the same management team? Is this is this sort of a a, a company that manages quite a few different portfolios? Or can you give, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, the, the gentleman who who, who uh, is in charge in charge of these funds uh, has been at this for for back into the 1990s, I believe. And there have been, uh, and this is on this presentation, if, if, if people go to this link, they'll see the list of like five or six different mutual funds that used, they were part of the first-hand uh, fund group. And I think it's down to just three of them existing now. Mm-hmm. I don't know the extent to which they were simply merged together or folded or, or whatnot. But um, it's common in the mutual fund industry uh, that mutual funds will fold up or merge the funds that perform poorly and therefore be left with funds that have good track records. And um, uh, I'm really not sure of why so many funds previously existed uh, and, and don't exist anymore. I tried to find research on it. It's really difficult to find. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, well, is there anything else that you think we haven't covered that you think is important to discuss? Yes. Uh, to your listeners, um, the closed-end fund that I've been talking about is very unusual. There's only a handful of them in which the underlying portfolio that they own is private equity mm-hmm. rather than being securities. In fact, some people might, might not even call this a closed-end fund. They'd call it a BDC, a business development corporation. So the vast majority of closed-end funds, if you were to go to CEF Connect, and I really hope your your listeners that are savvy investors and, and like this sort of thing, I really recommend you learn about these closed-end funds. But most of them that exist and most of them that you should be interested in have have publicly traded securities underneath them. Now, they don't tend to hold broadly-based portfolios of equities. They tend to specialize in the less liquid securities like municipal bonds or uh, MLPs or real estate investment trusts or even strategies like owning stock and writing call options. And there's hundreds of them. Uh, and the key I'm getting at here, though, is that there's a huge difference between a closed-end fund that has publicly traded securities underneath it, forming its net asset value, in which the prices of those securities are determined in a competitive market, Versus a BDC or a fund like the one I've been talking about, whose underlying portfolio is illiquid private securities, uh, small new technology companies. And the values of those are estimated using, uh, they're called level three quotes, using uh, pricing models for venture capital. And that that is something that adds a whole nother level of complexity and um, uh, I would urge you to get started uh, by thinking in terms of uh, publicly traded securities like municipals. Go look at some of the great municipal bond closed-end funds to get started. And then 
once you learn those issues, begin to look at the um, BDC, the Business Development Corporation's uh, funds. Now, let me ask you something, Don. Did the fact that these are not liquid securities, does it create more wiggle room to pump up the value of the net asset values to increase the fees for the management? Is that is that a concern? It's a black box to me. So I can't state that that's something that I know to be true. Is it a concern? You 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 went right to the core of it. Yes, yeah, that's a concern, and uh, they they have uh, the valuations done by an external firm, mm-hmm. uh, uh, but they select that external firm and compensate them, and uh, it's it's um, uh, it's disclosed much of the much of the information on that is disclosed in the annual report, uh, but is that a potential uh, conflict of interest? Well, it's certainly human nature, in my opinion, but uh, I really don't know mm. whether this fund is is in any way misbehaving in that regard. Got it. All right, very interesting, Don. Is there, is there anything else? Or do you think we about covered it with SVBC? Um, I think that about covers it. I, I would say there there's a great book called The Random Walk Down Wall Street by Burton Melchior. Mm-hmm. And closed-end funds are a chapter in that book, uh, that, at least the last edition that I saw. It's been in many editions. And I would recommend reading that book if people get a chance, and that would actually provide a, a nice little introduction to closed-end funds. He claims our opportunities still aren't there, aren't still there. I believe they still are. Well, wasn't that book to my understanding, making the point that markets are perfectly efficient. Yes, and it's a model. Okay. You know, we 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 make points. Academics like myself, we make points, saying what would happen in an ideal world, uh, with you know no transactions costs and everything else. Sure. And then the real world, of course, deviates from that. And to me, it's a two stage process: understand the model of a perfect world, mm-hmm. and then learn where the model is breaking down. In an imperfect world. And then you can take advantage as an investor of where the model breaks down. Yes. Interesting. All right, Don. Well, it was a pleasure. And then again, uh, if any shareholders are listening or people who are interested in what's going on, it's savefirsthandtechnology.com. Is that correct? Yes. And they can contact me. My contact information is in that presentation. And they can contact the uh, the, the group that's, that's uh, helping me put up the website. Okay, great. All right. Well, Don, it was a pleasure to have you on and uh, really, you know, really appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Eric. I enjoyed it. Thanks. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Intelligent Investing Podcast with Eric Schlein. If you'd like to connect with Eric for questions, comments, feedback, ideas, or to inquire about being on the show, please contact Eric at intelligentinvesting at gmail.com. So in the words of Charlie Munger, I have nothing to add.